Welcome to the latest episode of Data Unchained. I'm your host, Molly Presley. So if you have not heard the podcast before, let me tell you a little bit about what this podcast is about. Over the past several decades, the paradigm for data access has changed a lot. We had the advent of cloud computing, the advent of remote data generation tools like instruments, IoT, sensors, and then now a lot of the scientists and human beings who are working with data are working remotely due to COVID. In today's decentralized world, getting data to remote workers, distributed applications, different cloud regions, and now even AI models is quite a big challenge. Data Unchained digs into the challenges and the solutions that make data an asset as a global resource. And today's guest um, is absolutely an expert in this area. Jenny Stiso is an enterprise data scientist at Myriad Genetics, and she's joining us to talk a little bit about this work in the life sciences and biotech space. So Jenny, thank you for joining. Thanks for having me, Molly. I'm really excited to be here. Before we jump into who Myriad is, can we talk a little bit about you? Um, where, what is your background, education, work? Um, maybe what does a day in the life of an uh, enterprise data scientist look like? Yeah, for sure. So I... Um you know, going into undergrad, data science wasn't quite a thing yet. So I was studying molecular and cellular biology. Um, I don't think I thought too carefully about that decision, but I was just, uh, I was pretty good at it. And it was somewhat interesting. So I kind of rolled with it. Um, and then, you know, as I sort of got more uh, further along in that path, you have to do more and more lab work. And I sort of realized that I was not as well suited for that portion of it. So I was sort of drawn towards the computational aspects of biology. Um, and I took that pretty far. I got a PhD in um, computational neuroscience. Um, and I think I was really fortunate because in my PhD, I joined a lab where most of their work was computational neuroscience, but their expertise were actually in graph and network methods. So I got to meet a ton of people working with different types of data, and the focus was really on um, the methods for much of it. And that was where I sort of became aware of data scientist as a career and as a field. And so, you know, I tried to structure my work and my projects to kind of make the transition from um, this applied biomedical research into um, being a data scientist. And I was hoping to sort of merge those two, find a data scientist position at a healthcare company. Was that um, difficult or are there many jobs was, and they're looking for smart people who can actually fill them? I mean, I would say both are true. Um, I found the transition to be quite difficult. I think a lot of it is just sort of, um, it's sort of like a marketing issue, like being able to translate how the skills that you use in research sort of into the same language that people at um, companies understand. <laughs> um, so I think there's tons and tons of overlap, but I found it quite hard to um, to actually make that transition. And so I did spend some time in these sort of in-between positions where you're like half researcher, half data scientist, um, but yeah, in all of those positions, I was really working a lot with um, relying a lot on open data and collaborating with tons of different type of types of people. Um, so it was a really valuable experience overall. Okay, excellent. Um, and as you look at Myriad, what exactly genetics research is prevalent and different organizations covers all kinds of gambits of um, what genetic research is about. Can you tell us a little bit about Myriad and your specific focus there as a company? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so Myriad is a genetic testing company. They primarily have um, 
three um three sort of main areas that they do their genetic testing. There's a women's health area. So Myriad was sort of founded on um, the uh, like a BRCA genetic test. So this is a genetic test for a predisposition to breast cancer. And we've been able to follow that up with other products about, you know, which treatment might be right for you, other things in the women's health space. There's also um, an oncology um, division where we're doing genetic tests for other types of cancer that maybe aren't necessarily specific to women's health. Um, and the area that I have worked the most in is actually Myriad's um, mental health division. So we also have a product um, called GeneSight that's testing for different, um, mostly antidepressant sensitivities. So based on, you know, this battery of gene tests, you might tolerate this type of medicine better than that type of medicine. Um, and, you know, coming from neuroscience, I think this product was really interesting to me because this is a space that's... Um, it's so it's very complicated, and there's still a lot of room for improvement here, for sure. That and was then actually my, in the back of my head. The neuroscience focus would definitely draw you into that area. Oh yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, so it's um, GeneSight has a special place in my heart. Um, and then as an enterprise data scientist, we are really serving. So most of my projects are on GeneSight, but we cover all of them, and we work mostly with. Um, basically business partners. So we, our team is not like making the genetic tests or making, you know, the algorithms that determine people's risk for things, but we're working, um, you know, with people in, you know, marketing, accounting, any other kind of group within Myriad to make sure that we are, you know, serving our customers the best, reaching the widest group of patients and uh, just making sure that the business can run smoothly and leverage some useful insights. Awesome. And when you think about, the mental health space and how data science contributes. Maybe you can go a little bit deeper into, you know, there's, there's technology side and then there is the lab side. How does the technology side really help? Yeah, I think that, um, I think this is a great distinction and I think it is really important. Um, patients are, um, you know, obviously they need quality products that are going to improve their mental health, but they need to also be able to access them. They need to be aware of them. And I think with the mental health product specifically, this can be a challenge because if people are searching for care when they're having, you know, a major depressive episode, it can be, you know, really hard to um, navigate that process when you're not feeling well, basically. And so... It's difficult when you're not, when you are feeling well. Yeah, right? exactly. And then Healthcare you add to it. is hard. <laughs> yeah. And then you just, yeah, it can just really compound. And I think it can prevent people who sometimes often need it the most from actually getting care. So there's definitely that user experience side that's really important. Um, but also, like I said, sort of making people aware that the product exists. Not everybody knows that this is um, this type of testing is an option. So I think that is, uh, it's really important to be able to really utilize the um, advancements that the science team is like creating and doing such a great job on. You need to have this other piece as well. Okay, cool. And can you talk a little bit about what are your data sources? Where are they coming from? Mm -hmm. So for um, since my job is mostly serving the business, much of it is internal data. Um, so, you know, our company, we use Salesforce. So we have, uh, you know, there's some marketing information from Salesforce and other internal sources. We, um, we just store that all in internal databases. And then we tend to um, my team specifically tends to supplement that type of data from um, either public or like semi-open sources. So we can, um, oftentimes we're trying to 
contextualize trends with things like social determinants of health. Um, Social determinants of health is sort of the idea that uh, people's uh, health is determined not only by their uh, biology or even their behaviors, but actually a big chunk of it is sort of just their uh, the social context that they are living in. Um, do they have access to healthcare? Are they close to doctor's offices? Do they trust um, medicine as an institution in the U.S.? Um, so those things can um, explain quite a lot of differences in people who are seeking treatment and people who are responding to it, things like that. And so those are usually, like I said, either public or somewhat open data sources that we're trying to bring in uh, to supplement those kinds of things. There's a question that kind of lingers in my head, and I know you have, um, we're going to talk about this at the end, about biased data sets a bit and some of your experience there. But are getting unbiased data sets, is it particularly challenging in this space given the patient care concerns and patient rights on data and all of that? Does that make it particularly hard? I I would say yes, although I guess I have to qualify it because I haven't worked in a ton of other spaces. I've mostly worked in healthcare, but it does it definitely is a challenge and I also think it can have pretty big impacts. You know, you're working with people's health, so if you have a biased data set that can, you know, have negative impacts on people's health, which uh, you know, is uh, a little more risky than maybe some other use cases. Um, but yeah, I would definitely say so. There's a lot of evidence of um, the U.S. healthcare system sort of treating different groups of people differently. And, you know, the why of that is, you know, beyond the scope of this podcast, but, you know, the evidence (laughs) is that it happens. And so that will get embedded into your data. Um, And, you know, you can't not use data from the healthcare system because that's really the only place that's tracking a lot of what you're interested in. And so those biases can definitely seep in. Um, And that's in addition to a lot of sort of broader issues of, um, you know, who's going to participate in studies, who's getting counted, who's not. Um, Do you have selection bias from those types of things? Um, But yeah, it's definitely, it can definitely be a a big issue in healthcare. Okay. And any other concerns around data sources? You know, I think multiple data sources is a challenge across any organization, any data scientist, data engineer. Um, But are there other specific areas on your data sources that you're concerned with? Yeah, so I think there's, um, I mean, there are some concerns where it's like you want to decide if you're going to use this data source or not. And then there are other concerns where it's like, if I want to use this, will it be possible or like simple? Um, and so there's definitely a lot of um, things to consider with, you know, data governance, data documentation, the format of the data, you know, is it even possible to like merge this information with whatever you know, our company stores, like if you're doing geographic information and maybe one data set is at the level of um, the U.S. Census and the other, or like the U.S. Census um, counties, that's what I mean, like county level, another one's at zip code level, uh, those don't like one-to-one map onto each other. Mm, So even if it's a great data set, you might not be able to merge them. Um, And I think the other thing that you, this is definitely more of a consideration if you're going to be putting up data, but with healthcare, you know, privacy is a, a huge issue. So you want to make sure that the data are properly de-identified. And I think if you have any questions about an existing open database, you would want to, you know, raise that to the people hosting it before you were pulling that data in and uh, and using it. And so when you think about um, <clears throat> who you're doing this work for, who's giving you the jobs? Are you going out and trying to find information that you've identified questions yourself 
that you want to answer? Or is it the scientists? Is it the enterprise? You have this enterprise data science mm -hmm. um, title. Maybe talk a little bit about kind of who are the consumers of your information or driving your projects. Yeah. So it's it's a little bit of a mix. And, um, you know, Myriad has recently, I think, been investing a lot more in sort of building out its data science capabilities. And so I think because we're sort of a new team, there is some of it is coming from us where we're saying these are the types of things we can do um, that maybe Myriad hasn't had the capability to do before. And now we can. And then we will go to certain um businesses and be like, is this of interest to you? And, you know, if not, maybe there's, you know, something in the middle that we could um, work on. And then, so some of it is there, but a lot of it is actually people in the business. So like a senior manager or something on a marketing finance um, insurance relations team, they'll say, you know, we're having this, uh, this problem, this, um, I don't know, this like roadblock in our day-to-day uh, -day working process and either they've sought us out um, ourselves or maybe they've talked to some other people in tech who, and they've sort of eventually routed them to us. And then we'll start, um, you know, kind of trying to work with them and see if um, our skill set is a good fit for solving those types of problems. Do you feel as part of your job to evangelize the capabilities of data science? Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, and I'm sure at some companies, you know, if they're, if you're, if you have a huge data science team, maybe this isn't part of the job for all data scientists. But yeah, I think um, because Myriad's doing this new investment, I definitely think that's that's part of it. So we're trying to, you know, broaden people's horizons, I think, a little bit in terms of what what can be done with data um, and sort of what, uh, what benefits we could bring to the team. Because sometimes it's things they haven't even um, considered, really. Yeah. And I think from my experience, you know, both running this podcast and just being in this industry for a long time, that there's countless use cases for data science work that the organization never even considers. You know, you're kind of used to getting your mm -hmm. reports a certain way, your data a certain way, and especially in more established companies that all got set up long before data scientists existed, you know, and yeah, um, people don't sure. even think about where to use them. So I think that's cool. Um, mm -hmm. Out of curiosity, how do you see... AI affecting this space? Is it kind of peripheral? Is it just another tool? How does that fit in your workload? Yeah. So I think for me personally, it is, um, I would say both peripheral and just sort of another tool. I think there are probably some um, companies who maybe feel a lot more pressure to like demonstrate that they can provide products that have um, I'm assuming you're talking about like generative AI since that's sort of like the newer um, like hot topic and the yeah. specific kind of generative AI that's like largely. Um, I mean, certainly that's on everyone's mind how to yeah. operationalize it. And I think for data scientists or folks who've been in the data field, AI is not new, new, but mm -hmm. the business interest in gen AI is. And so, yeah, um, that's definitely what <laughs> I've noticed is that, um, yeah, like people who aren't in tech have a lot of, you know, ideas about ways that they could maybe use these mm -hmm. um, products. But yeah, I would say for me... Well, and the interface is a little easier, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's so much more accessible. You don't need and to I know use that sequel, interface too. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I will use Gen AI products to, you know, write emails or, mm -hmm. you know, things like that. Um, obviously, you know, you can't put... Uh, like company code or company information into your, you know, personal whatever chatbot account. Um, 
But yeah, so we are doing some efforts to try and work through the use cases that people in the company have. So if somebody in customer service is like, oh, I have this great idea, and I think we can use generative AI to solve this problem. Um, and some of that work is thinking about, you know, is there a simpler solution? Um, you know, how uh, big a problem is it, as you do kind of with any project? Um, but there is definitely increased interest with this new um, generative AI uh, boom. Um, but for us, most of our projects are not using generative AI. Most of them have um, ways where they can be solved simpler, faster, easier to interpret for the stakeholders. So it's definitely another tool. And if um, there will surely be use cases where um, it is the best way to solve the problem in our future. Uh, but we are not um, going out of our way to like... I don't know, force it into a solution where it's not not a good fit, yeah, I would say. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, how, how is governance managed? And I'm thinking both in your existing data science workloads, but also AI. Are you using the same governance policies and tools no matter what? And I think it's particularly interesting in anytime you have patient data involved, I think governance is mm -hmm. even more important. Yeah, so we, um, we had this whole... Um, like workstream created to kind of talk about this exact issue. And it does seem like a lot of our um, existing, you know, legal compliance, whatever policies like are um, worded and designed in a way that they just naturally like extend to uh, generative AI. Um, I think it's worth making it explicit to people in the company that that's true and that we do have, you know, guidance around how to use these tools. Um, but a lot of it was already covered by our existing policies. And like you said, as a healthcare company, I think you have to be so, um, you know, ironclad with those policies. So I think it's probably a good sign that they were, you know, designed in such a way that a new, like, fast-rising technology is just sort of already incorporated into them. Um, but we are working to sort of make new ways where people can use the tools if they want to, you know, how do we get the right licenses? So there is some work around um, creating those paths. Um, and the company is providing the base models have to do work on that end as well. Um, like, you know, provide more secure models and, uh, you know, versions of their models where we would feel safe putting company um, data into them, things like that. Yeah, that makes sense. So mm -hmm. how, how does this work in your industry on... Um, shared data sets versus controlled or proprietary data sets. I'm not sure I'm using quite the right word there, but it seems like most of this work benefits from large, as big of a data set as possible. Um, mm -hmm. Are there oh, yeah, open sure. sourced data sets or public data sets that you're using, or is it primarily research you're doing within Myriad? Yeah, so I think at my particular job as an enterprise data data scientist it is mostly data within myriad um as i mentioned earlier we're sort of bringing in that like social determinants of health data um and broadly speaking you know i don't think it would be very useful to the field of healthcare even if we even if it was possible for us to share like our financial data that's not really useful um i think where it is more yeah, where it is more useful and more common is on the um, like the medical research side. So at one point, um, maybe, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago, it was very, very rare to share your data if you were collecting it. It was sort of, um, you know, it makes sense. You spend a long time collecting it and you want to be able to reap the benefits mm -hmm. of that. Absolutely. But now, 
Yeah. But now, um, as you mentioned, the analyses, the advancement of the field benefit from not doing that. Um, so if you're treating a rare disease, you really need to aggregate uh, data from tons and tons of places just to get enough observations of people with that rare disease to be able to make any progress. Um, and even with more common diseases, if you want to be able to you know, design a product that's representative, um, you know, a treatment that's representative, you need to aggregate from a lot of different areas. So, you know, in genetics, like early genetics research was like heavily skewed towards people with European ancestry. Um, and one of the, I think the really cool things about Myriad is that we have some of the, uh, I think only, but at the very least, um, first uh, gen- or ancestry aware genetic tests. So, you know, tests that are accounting for the fact that the data was skewed earlier and sort of trying to undo a lot of that, um, that skew, basically. So you're 100% right in that pulling from these larger sources is really what's going to advance the field. And I think now it is much, much more common if you're in that medical research space to not share your data publicly, like you don't want anybody who walks in off the street to be able to access it, but share it with people who ask and sort of have, um, you know, a good reason to be using it. Um, And, you know, this is always generally always de-identified data, um, but basically being able to contribute to you know, the greater good and more more advancements um, through that kind of aggregation. So it's certainly more common now. And as you look forward into what will happen next, do you feel like your field is evolving so fast? Some of the things we've already talked about, just evangelizing the work and getting it into the standard enterprise work streams is kind of the next step in your space, or are there other tools or, um, I don't know, opportunities opening up that we haven't discussed yet? Yeah, that's a great question. I do think that this is definitely a promising direction forward. And I do think that sometimes um, the tools scale faster than like the infrastructure for them. Um, So I think I would like to see maybe a little more investment in that uh, infrastructure. Um, And I think governance and documentation kind of go along with that. like not only storing the data somewhere, but making sure it's understandable and easy to use. I'm sure there are other um, big, big moves forward. Um, But this is definitely one coming from like a biomedical research background. I think this would be one where we could make uh, a lot of progress with um, sort of solutions that already exist, but maybe just investing more in them and making them more common practice. So I think this is maybe one of the lower hanging fruit areas for, for advancement here. A lot of the listeners to our show are in the more senior parts of the organization, you know, maybe the business strategy officers setting, you know, maybe think about 2024 budgets right now. What kind of infrastructure um, helps someone like you be more productive, move faster? There's like a few different directions I'm thinking. One of them is good, clear documentation. And I think this is true at multiple levels. Um, So, you know, if people uh, higher up can make it priorities to, you know, document data and allow time for that in project lifetimes. Um, you know, if you invest in it early, then everything gets faster <laughs> down the road. Um, but also, I think documentation of like what the higher level goals of the business are. Sometimes, and I don't think people do this purposefully, but sometimes I think the they just get lost in translate translation, basically. And so sometimes there are higher level, you know, strategic changes that you know, wouldn't get communicated all the way down to somebody like me. And then if I just see, 
I don't know, random work processes changing and not understanding why, it's always useful to have more of that context. And generally, I think Myriad actually does a pretty pretty good job of that. But um, yeah, at some other places, I think it can be uh, yeah, hard when you aren't kind of aware of why those changes are make, being made. Um, and then there is also definitely like tooling that helps. So um, like uh, at Myriad, we have like Snowflake, which helps me as a data scientist access all the data that our data engineering team is working really hard to, um, you know, put up and store in an architecture that's useful. Um, but at other nonprofits that I've had, there wasn't as much investment in those kinds of tools to make it easier to work with the data, um, query the data. Everything was sort of done. Um, I, don't, I don't necessarily want to say ad hoc, but, um, you know, you have like the cheapest possible solution and not enough staff like supporting it. So that if there's mm-hmm. an issue, it's kind of on the, um, you just the individual your worker. Own tools individually. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> make it work. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You make it work for you. And then somebody else comes, and they have to do the whole process over again. Right. So, which the economy um, generally scale I think, there, uh, just like documentation. Yes. <laughs> if everybody's using the same tools, not rebuilding them every time, you'll move yes. faster. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really putting an upper bound on the work you can produce. Um, and yeah, once again, I think Mirai is good at investing in those things. I think many tech companies and established healthcare companies are. But um, you know, when you get into nonprofits and academic institutions where there isn't as many resources, I think those are sometimes the things that get cut. Yeah, absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. So, Jenny, you were just recently at a conference called BioBytes and speaking on the topic of um, biased data sets or how to remove bias from data sets. Can you talk a little bit more about the importance of this and you know, what was your talk about? Maybe just a, a paraphrase mm-hmm. of the talk. Yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, so we kind of touched on it earlier, too, but, you know, healthcare data are um, often biased either because of who is not included in them or even just because they absorb some of the biases in the system, whether they were older or even the ones that are still present today. And so if you are, you know, working in healthcare and building these models, um, if you aren't aware of those biases, sometimes your models will um, disproportionately help or harm one group over another. So I think one of the classic examples that people might be familiar with is, um, you know, building a model to detect if a, a picture of a mole is cancerous. And, you know, if you only train that model on images of people with lighter colored skin, then it won't perform well on images of people um, with darker colored skin. And there's tons and tons and tons of examples like this in healthcare. And so um, so it's important to um, take some steps to try and test if your model is biased, and then you can try to mitigate it as well. Generally, it's impossible to get rid of entirely, um, but there are tools out there. Um, to help make it better. And that was really what the talk was focusing on, what those tools were, um, what sort of the most accepted um, uh, versions of all of those tools are and how how you can use them. Is there a way for your results that you're publishing um, to have the documented biases go with them? Do those kind of go hand in hand? Like, here's my data set, here's my analysis and here's the biases that I know are inherent? Yeah, I think that is considered like the gold standard sort of best practices of if you are, you know, documenting a data set, if you're putting a data set up for other people to use, um, because it's not possible to make a data set that doesn't have biases. And so I think 
it would help our community if we sort of acknowledged that and then just put a little bit more time into writing like what they are. Like in this particular data set, we weren't able to get as many people from this population because we live in this area and those people don't live around here. Um, that's much more helpful than, you know, trying to obscure all that information and present the data as something that is something that it's not something that's perfectly fair when that's not really possible. So gold standard, definitely, but um, it oftentimes gets left out, as is true with like most documentation <laughs> type things. It can oftentimes get cut when um, you know, you're up against time and, and budget deadlines. So uh, a word to the wise for the consumers of this kind of information is to be looking for those biases as well as you are analyzing the information you're receiving. Interesting. Yeah, for sure. We've included in the show notes for this podcast a link to this talk that Jenny did as part of the BioBite series. Um, Jenny, can you tell us just a little bit more? What is that series? Yeah, for sure. So BioBytes is a um, it's a talk series that takes place in person in um, Salt Lake City, and also you know all the sessions are recorded and on Zoom, so you can join them virtually and watch them afterwards on YouTube as well. Um, and the idea is that it's supposed to be a space for people working at this intersection of healthcare and technology to get together, learn new skills, um, talk about some of the challenges and victories that they've had working in healthcare. Um, and it's a really great community. So if any of your listeners are in Salt Lake, definitely recommend attending. And um, the upcoming session they have is all about AI. So if you're interested in that space, um, you can definitely check out some of the recordings. Oh, great. I have bookmarked it and I will check out your, sh your talk, but also the AI one. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Hey, Jenny, this has been a really interesting conversation. Um, thank you for taking the time for joining the show and from your new home, I believe, as well, which is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, your experience in both the biotech space as well as in the data science space, it's, it is really interesting to see you bringing the two together. Um, uh, so thank you for sharing with, with our team. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to Data Unchained, powered by Hammerspace. To learn more, visit hammerspace.com. If you have a guest you would like to hear on the show, email me at molly at hammerspace.com. Mm -hmm.